And if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, we'll begin reading today in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold fast our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So you see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. This message, um, we are concluding our study of this verse. We've had an intensified look at Hebrews 3.13, especially. I believe it's been 11 weeks, including today, that we have looked at this passage. And we have attempted to unpack the significance of that single verse. And it is so significant for us, and it informs what our lives should be about. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That is powerful. And it's not, it's not as if the other commands of Scripture are vague or inadequate. It's that sometimes we can put into the other commands in Scripture whatever content we would like. So we hear the command, love one another. And we fill in the blank for what we think or hope or want that to mean. Post on their Facebook wall when it's their birthday, right? Love one another. Check. But this, it says, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It doesn't just tell us how often what it is. It tells us exactly the motive behind it and what it should produce in our brothers and sisters. So the first message that we took on this, I attempted to explain the entire message. And the main, what I called it is the war against unbelief. And we are involved in a lifelong war in our hearts and in the lives of our brothers and sisters against unbelief. Because he says, take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. The root cause of any rebellion or falling away is ultimately unbelief. Your responsibility is to the Lord. Then to yourself and to your brothers and sisters. To make sure that you do not begin to foster a unbelieving heart. She would be intentionally involved in each other's lives to the point where you would know if unbelief begins to take hold. It's insidious. 
and it's secretive so long until it breaks forth. The second message we attempted to look at the reason behind it all. Because of the resurrection, this, is, this was uh, Resurrection Sunday, or we call it Easter. Exhort one another because of the resurrection. None of this makes sense at all unless there is a living God to whom you can fall away from. He says, leading to you to fall away from the living God. This is the living God. We're not just talking about being consistent with the rules of a club or paying your membership dues, or a subscription service, or not violating the terms of an employment contract. You stand before the living God, and He has provided such a great salvation. And the author rhetorically asked then, For since the message declared by angels, referring to the old covenant, proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The encouragement here is that Jesus is alive. We are dealing with the living God, the one who is really there. That reality or that truth should strike us with great fear and awe because our God is a consuming fire and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And this is the God of whom it is said, you cannot see his face because no man can see his face and live. But at the same time, none of this would matter. None of this exhorting that we've been talking about would make any sense It wouldn't mean anything. It'd be worthless if Jesus were not alive today after having really been dead. And he is alive. And his reward and promises are indeed very great to those who trust him, deny themselves, and follow him. The third message in this series was exhort one another through prayer. In that message, I sought to plead with all of you and with myself to prioritize prayer in your life and in the life of our church. The reason that's so important is that if we're going to succeed in this exhorting one another, if we're going to help each other endure to the end so that we don't foster an unbelieving heart and it ultimately cuts us off from the living God, we have to do so by the power of the Spirit. It must be by God's strength and by His power. It is God who keeps us. As Jude said, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless. The power belongs to God. It's not that God is waiting for us, wringing His hands as if He needs us to accomplish His work in you. He will finish His work, but it will be through us, exhorting one another. We are his tools. We are his instruments. So if we are cut off from his power and his spirit, we are worthless, derelict tools. And this is an important clarification. We can think and try many different ways to exhort one another. There's many programs and books and curriculums and preaching series, church plants. You can build relationships. You can say encouraging things, but all of that is for naught if the Spirit does not bless, if we are not empowered, if He does not fill our sails to continue in the good work. You might as well try to grow a beautiful garden in the Sahara or on the surface of the moon, and that would be much more doable, much easier for you to succeed in doing than the work of exhorting your brothers and sisters to endure without the power of the Spirit. And it's not because we believe necessarily in the power of prayer in some mystical sense. It has been said of Martin Lloyd-Jones that he did not believe in the power of prayer. He believed in the power of God and the inadequacy of man, and so he prayed. The fourth message in the series was talking about how this command is to one another, meaning anyone and everyone. 
You mean my friends or the people in my family or just the people who are like me, the people I agree with, the people who are on the same side of the political aisle as me? Sure, those people, but also everyone else. Anyone and everyone. Everyone is everyone's responsibility in the household of faith. Our preferences, because we are selfish, our preference is to distance ourselves from people who are different from us and only associate ourselves with those who think and feel and act like we do. And that's not exhortation, just hanging out with mirrors. That's not the one another that's here. Most of us would much prefer to hang out with the 99 and not go after the one. The fifth message we directly address some specific, we began to address some specific relationships within the body of Christ. We asked this question, how can husbands exhort their wives? The author of Hebrews alludes to the creation account in saying that Jesus is the son of man, referring back to the creation narrative. So we went back to Genesis and asked, what should have Adam done? How could he have been a better husband? And how can we look at Jesus's positive example to answer how husbands can exhort their wives? And I won't rehearse all the ways that husbands can exhort their wives. Husbands, go back and listen to that message if you so desire. But I will mention that one of the main ways that husbands can exhort their wives is reminding them of the gospel as it's displayed, even in the beginning, as the curse is being handed out. Your offspring will crush the head of the serpent as he bruises his heel. The gospel is given even in that moment. And as husbands, your responsibility is to exhort your wives to the gospel. The next message, we talk about how wives can exhort their husbands. Same rationale, looking back to the story of Genesis. and How Eve should have done better and how she actually did exhort Adam after the curse. And I won't rehearse all of that, but the way that wives can also exhort their husbands in the gospel is reminding them of the promise that a better man than Adam would come, the descendant of the woman, the offspring, and crush the head of the serpent who deceived us all. The next message we talked about exhorting one another, parents, children, and siblings. And we began to look at the example of Jesus in his life, how he lived, how he loved, to answer the question, how can we be towards people in our lives and all the different relationships you have with them and know what it means to live a life that pleases God towards them. So we're supposed to exhort one another, just in a general sense. He says, exhort one another. But what if that other person, the person in front of you, is your parent, your sibling, or your child? How can we exhort them specially? And the main takeaway from that is the family is given as a way to point us to the greater reality of God's family. That what we're given in the same way that marriage is given to us to shadow or to symbolize what is happening between Christ and the church and a family is given to us as a signpost as a shadow of what God is doing in bringing many sons to glory so in your interactions with your family your parents your children your siblings that's what it's supposed to shine and that's what Jesus did we also talked about the married and the unmarried and how they relate and the problems that can often exist between those two groups the big takeaway is that Jesus is the example for both because in his humanity, he was single. He had no spouse. He was pure, single, and celibate. But in his deity, he came to redeem his bride. So we can look to him as the perfect example of how the married and the unmarried interrelate and how they can exhort one another. Next, we looked at how the young can exhort the old and how the old can exhort the young. And we didn't primarily look at how Jesus interacted with those younger than him and those older than him, though that might have been valuable. But we sought to see how Jesus treated everyone regardless of age and how his priority was honoring the Father in all things and how that 
main objective of glorifying the Father should be our objective in how we relate to people. And that flowed to the next message. We looked at friendship. If you found a way to escape the definition of each of those different messages, at least you found yourself in the message regarding friends. Jesus shows us in interacting with all kinds of people how to exhort those that you know or don't know very well and even make them your friends. Regardless of where you find yourself, on the inside or on the outside of the categories listed in all the other messages, if you know any human to any degree, if you have any human contact, you can look to Jesus and know how you can exhort and love them. So this week, what is there left to say? Why drag this sermon series out one more week? This is the conclusion of the whole thing. The final thought to leave you with, but also something to serve as a capstone for all that has been said. And it's really difficult to summarize an entire study. The point, what I'm trying to do, is not boil it all down necessarily, but to pack it all together. Sort of like when you're getting ready for a vacation, and you've got your bag, and it's this big, and your bed or your floor is covered with everything that you've got to fit in that bag. Because you're limited with the number of carry-ons you can take, so you take 30 minutes, an hour, or however long to just squeeze it all in and getting rid of the things that you don't really need. So that's what we're trying to do in this message. Get it all together in a way that can be carried along with you as you leave this room. The Bible often does this. It has passages that attempt to summarize what the author has been saying or what he's about to say. In Judges 21-25, you see one of these. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's kind of for you. That's what you want to hang your hat on. That's a way to understand all of what's been said in Judges. Also in Ephesians 3 20 through 21, Paul says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. And that's how he summarizes all of chapters 1, 2, and 3. And then John does it the opposite way because John does everything different than everybody in the Bible. So he says, before he gets to his main Teaching, he summarizes it all in verses 11 through 13. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So, this is the grand finale, a way to try and summarize everything that's been said, the conclusion. But what theme or a theological idea could possibly serve to bring everything that we've said up to this point together? What single thought can serve to help us hold all of these commands, all of these different intricate ways that you're supposed to exhort your brothers and sisters? This is no easy task. And I'm not exploring this and asking this question just to fill time. This is deadly important so that none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is important. This is your duty to your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is your duty to the Lord yourself to make sure we all make it home safely. So how to answer this? Again, we will look at the author. We will go to the author of Hebrews himself and ask, what idea would you give us to pack all this together? If you were paying attention as we were reading through the passage this morning, you noticed a recurring word, and we haven't talked about it a whole lot yet. It occurs multiple times in the passages we already read, and it's rest. Rest. A beautiful and elusive word, especially for parents of young children. Many of you may look at me and say, I have no idea what that means. It's been years since I've had anything close to what you might call rest. But here are the places where it occurs. 3.11, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. 3.18, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Verse 
four, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of, us, any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Chapter 4, verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. And then chapter 4, verses 4 through 11. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, referring to the conquest of Canaan and entering the promised land, God would not have spoken of a later day, another day. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fail by the same sort of disobedience. So this theme of rest unites both chapters as we've been looking at this exhortation to exhort one another and to make sure we all make it. The whole point of it all, the end goal, is that we would safely enter the rest of God. So it also serves as a preview to what we'll be talking about the next time that we're in Hebrews. And he is clearly speaking about the final rest for the people of God. He's not talking about the promised land. Because he says if Joshua had given them rest, he wouldn't have spoken of another day. He will call this later, and it's, I'm trying to show you how I'm connecting this all. We'll look at this verse. This final rest of the people of God is referred to in chapter 12 as the kingdom. Hopefully when I say this word again, kingdom, by the end of this message, you will be moved. We're going to spend the rest of our time talking about the kingdom. This is the end goal of the exhortation. We're not just part of some country club. We're not part of some social activist movement. It's not some cool, hip way of living for the sake of being perceived well by others. None of that matters. The reason this Christian life matters is because there is a kingdom, and one day you will be brought into that kingdom if you endure to the end. This is the final rest of God. So what shall we say about the kingdom? The glorious kingdom of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Have you seen it? The kingdom of God is unshakable. Hebrews 12, verses 28 through 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. It's not just that the kingdom of God can't be undone. It's not just that it can never be destroyed. It can't even be shaken. All the assailants wail against the outer walls. And even their most grim attacks don't even send the slightest tremor through the foundations of the kingdom of God. As violent as our opponents may be, as insane and rabid as the enemy's attacks may be, as pervasive as the mockery of the world is, as weak as our faith may be, as dark as our depression and doubt may be, the kingdom of God is unshakable. So the response is that we should respond in acceptable worship, reverence, awe, not flippant or cheap or quaint. This is the final rest of God, the unshakable kingdom. Have you seen it? The kingdom of God is also eternal. 
Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and there was presented before him and given to him dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel 7, verse 27, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. 2 Peter 1, 10 through 11, Therefore, brothers... Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Revelation eleven fifteen, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. It's not just eternal in the sense that it will always be from here on out and going on into the ages to come, but reaching back into untold ages upon ages, as long as there was anything to speak about, any creation at all, any expression of God in acting or doing or speaking, which is to say from before the beginning of time itself, the kingdom of God is there, ruling, reigning forever, king of all. Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel 4, 3, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Travel backwards in time till you come to the utter beginning of all things. Pass before that to ages unimaginable where there was nothing but the Lord and his angels. And even before that, and you will find the kingdom of God ever standing, ever glorious. And also go forward in time through age after age after age and trillions of years, a length of time such that no one can think or process. Where if we, even his adopted children, were not sustained by his grace and joy, would have long withered away being brought to dust, and even that dust being brought to nothing. And there you will find the kingdom of God, ever glorious, ever standing. So the response should be that we should be diligent and make our calling and election sure. Learn from Nebuchadnezzar the lesson God taught him when thinking about your life and your life choices. This is the final rest of the people of God. This is the kingdom of God. Do you see it? The kingdom of God is also beautiful. It's not just that the kingdom of God is there in some eternal and brute sense, and it's nothing you can do anything about to undo it, though that is true. The kingdom of God is also beautiful, and brothers and sisters, stunningly beautiful. Psalm 50, verses 1 through 6. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Can you see it? 
beautiful kingdom of God. Its banners bearing the seal of the majesty on high. The flags of more stirring glory and splendor of color than old glory has ever known. The clothing of the inhabitants of the kingdom of God in brightness and beauty. The armies of the kingdom of God, fully armed and terrible, in perfect alignment, awaiting to rush out into any corner of the universe at the slightest command of God Almighty. He is the Lord of hosts. How glorious and beautiful this kingdom must be that if you were to see even one of these heavenly beings, the angels, of whom there are myriads upon myriads, If you were to see one of them, you would fall down in awe and paralyzed terror. And myriads and myriads of them are created just to be the servants of this grand, beautiful kingdom. The beautiful city, the capital, the new Jerusalem. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and he, God himself, will be their God. And also the throne, the beautiful throne of this kingdom, the seat of power, the place where the I am exercised unquestioned, unending control over all things that have ever existed, exist today, and will ever exist. There are many passages in scripture about the throne. We'll go to one in the Psalms. If you want to turn there, you can. Psalm 9, 4 through 8. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne, giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has passed away. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world in righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. I wish we had time to read all of Revelation 4 that speaks almost exclusively about the throne of God. We'll read just verses 9 through 11. Revelation 4, 9 through 11. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Can you see this beautiful kingdom of God? This is the final resting place for the believer. This is why it matters for you to exhort your brothers and sisters because this kind of kingdom waits for you. But it's not just that it awaits. The kingdom is also here. Jesus says this, his first sermon Recorded in Mark 14 through 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In a very simple and tangible way, brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God is already here in the hearts of those who love to do His will. This is why Jesus says 
Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's not two separate things. Seeking the kingdom of God and seeking his righteousness is the same thing. The kingdom of God is wherever his will is done in joy and love. So the kingdom of God is already here in your hearts. When you see people loving to do the will of God and gathering and worshiping him in joy, that is the kingdom of God. It is here among us. Yet, it is not here in full. In Acts chapter 1, the disciples asked Jesus, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says to them, It is not for you to know the time or seasons that this will take place. Indicating that there is a time where it is going to happen. And also Revelation 11, 15 through 18. This is the day we wait for. This hasn't happened yet. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you. Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. And the nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both great and small, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. This hasn't happened yet. So the kingdom is already here in your hearts. It's not a building. It's not a place necessarily you can go in the known universe. But it is here among us. And yet at the same time, we wait that his kingdom is fully established here and we see it. Things are not as they should be. We pray that his will would be done here as it is in heaven All things have been subjected to Christ as we have already seen in the book of Hebrews. But we don't yet see everything submitted to him. But one day, he will bring justice. And he will establish his kingdom forever. There is also of this kingdom an ever-increasing peace and glory and justice and righteousness. Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of his father David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Heaven can sometimes seem unappealing because the idea of it is that it's the static state. We just get there and it's the same thing forever and ever and ever. Trillions of years upon trillions of years. I don't want any part of that. And that's not what it's going to be. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Entropy and stillness are characteristic of this world. Not the world to come. The kingdom of God is a continual cascading and unfolding of greater peace, greater glory, greater justice, and greater righteousness. This is prefigured on Mount Sinai when Moses stands before the glory of God and all the people with him. There's cloud and smoke and thunder and lightning and the braying of the trumpet that gets louder and louder and louder and louder to the point where the people say, Stop! For if we keep listening to the voice of God in his presence in this way, we will surely die. You go talk to him for us. This world is the one that is dying and decaying and coming to nothing and stopping and not changing. Life has left this 
place as it has been cursed with the curse of sin and death. But the coming kingdom is full of life and full of peace, and it will ever increase, as two of my favorite authors have said it. Further up and further in, it will be a continual discovery of more and more of the glory and the greatness and the righteousness of our God. The gray curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass, and then you see it. White shores and beyond a far green country under a swift sunrise. And the main feature, brothers and sisters, of this kingdom of God, second to the king himself, is not the city, it's not the gates, it's not the golden streets, it's not all of the magnificent things that we'll get to do and see, it's you, the sons and daughters of God, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, Romans 8, 19. And more than just a future revealing of you and me in the fullness of the glorified state, but even now, you belong to this kingdom. And it gives you a gloriously clear and tangible meaning for your life. You are a minister. People call me a minister and missionaries and pastors and whatever. You're a minister if you're a Christian. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation and the role of preachers and teachers and everyone else is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You are a martyr. You are a witness. You shall be my witnesses. You are a missionary. As you sent me into the world, Jesus says to the Father, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. You are an evangelist. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the final rest of the people of God. This is the great eternal kingdom. It's happening now and you have the opportunity to live your life in line with it. And some of you are so often reaching out for some meaning or some purpose or some direction. He's already given it to you. It's the kingdom. This is the final rest that we are on the precipice of entering. This is the way the author of Hebrews speaks to his audience. We're almost there. We sit on the edge, on the other side of the Jordan, looking into Canaan. We're almost there brothers and sisters, and whether that means your death or a thousand years from now, if Jesus so tarries, we're almost there. How glorious is this kingdom that even the greatest empires and nations of all human history serve as object lessons at best for the kingdom of God? Think of Babylon, the greatest empire of the time, served merely as a disciplinary rod for his children. He raised Nebuchadnezzar up, and then he brought him down. In Egypt, God says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I would make my power known. And Rome, the greatest empire to exist, some might say, for in this city there were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, Pontius Pilate, and the Jews, and the rulers to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And even the United States, if we're lucky, will serve merely as a scaffolding as the kingdom of God is built, as its foundations are laid, as its walls are raised up in your hearts and minds before our king comes. Have you seen it? Have you seen this kingdom? And finally, this kingdom has a king. After having said all this about the kingdom of God, as stunning as I hope it has all been for you, it's only natural and it only makes sense. It ought to be this glorious. It has to be. And I've even done a poor job of communicating how weighty and glorious it truly is because the king deserves that 
infinitely glorious kingdom surrounding him. He is the main feature. He is the great treasure and glory of this kingdom. As Paul says in Corinthians 15, 24 through 27, this is our king. Then comes the end when he will deliver the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. And he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Oh, just to ponder the majesty of our great king. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful, and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and he has on his head many diadems, many crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule over them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Crown him with many crowns, the Lamb upon his throne. Hark! How the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake, my soul, and sing of him who died for me. And hail him as thy matchless king throughout eternity. This is the living God. This is Jesus. That's why it matters for you to exhort your brothers and sisters to endure. Because this is the one you will stand before. High king of heaven, my victory won. May I reach Heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun, heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. This is the final rest of the people of God. This is the kingdom of God and his son, Jesus Christ. Have you seen it? It simply couldn't be any more beautiful. And it's sometimes hard for us to take it in. There are, in general, two groups of people in this room right now. On the one hand, there are those of you who have heard these words of God. And as I have tried to enthrone them and highlight them, you see it. You see the kingdom of God. You see its glory. And if this is you, what I want to say to you is this. What I have been doing this morning is not merely painting a picture of the kingdom of God. If that's all I've done, we've wasted our time. Rather, through the word of God, by the work of the Spirit, I have shown a light onto the real kingdom of God. You have seen the real thing. And there is a huge difference. With the eyes of faith, having been born again, you can see the real thing. Take encouragement then. Seek to see it often. Let that glorious vision of the kingdom of God change everything about your life. Don't leave this room unchanged. The other group in this room, either because the weakness of the flesh, the rebellion in your heart, frailty on my part, or because you've let distractions demand your attention, you've just not seen it. And to add to that, maybe some of you are just unimpressed by what the Word of God has said, and even more unimpressed by what I've said. You may have had the response of Felix as he listened to Paul. 
You've lost your mind. All your book learning has driven you out of your mind. But there is hope. In some of you, there may be, as it were, a tiny spark. I have heard clearly, I understand what you're saying, you might say, and I'm not impressed, but I am interested. I want to see it. I want to be moved by this vision. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And at this point, there's only one thing that's fitting for us to do, and that's to pray. Father, how glorious the kingdom of God, how glorious its city, its justice, its holiness, its throne, its sons and daughters and servants and its king. This is your final rest that you invite us to and ask that we would see our lives as building and seeking and even hastening the coming of this great kingdom. If you're in this room and you just haven't seen it, but you would want to, pray that the Lord God would cause you to be born again. That you would have the eyes of faith needed to see this great kingdom that he's invited us into. The promise of entering his rest still stands. I ask, Father, that as we seek to be an example an outpost of your kingdom, as it were, here at North Star Baptist Church, that you would transform our lives and the way we interact with each other. We would not settle for small and inadequate pictures of the kingdom of God, but would strive together as your people to show the world what your kingdom is like in our love for one another, in our devotion to your word, in our commitment to praying to you, our great God, to move mightily in our lives. as we sing this next song, I pray that if you need to speak to someone that you would find me or find the person who brought you and you would ask them how you can be born again. Father, we love you. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.